Well, I thank Pastor Steve for those abundantly kind words of introduction, which now I've had to endure for three services because this is the third service. And it is incredibly awkward now to come up and preach after that because the subject today is humility. So let me apply the sermon and say in light of the kind things he said, you know, anything good that the Lord has done through me, it's the Lord, it's not me. You know, any blessing that by God's hand has been brought to this congregation, individual, through what I have done, and I want to make sure that the, the glory of that goes to our Lord. He's the one who uh, creates all the fruit and gives all the increase. And I'm grateful just to be a part of that. Part of that, part of that journey. And grateful to be here now and opening God's Word with you here today. Happy to give Pastor Steve a, a break. He's been uh, preaching a lot, and uh, we're gearing up for the Christmas season and gearing up to wrap up First Peter. So we are getting close to the end of the book, and uh, I want to begin our sermon here today by having you call to mind an activity that maybe some of you have participated in. Have any of you ever engaged in the activity of what's commonly called people-watching? You know what I mean by people watching. This is when you just kind of find a place. There's lots of people. It's airport, park, mall, something like that. And uh, you go and you just kind of camp out. And you sit there and you stare at people. And you try to anticipate and hope, well, hopefully they're not going to look my way. And if you do, you kind of avert your eyes because, you know, you don't want to make eye contact. That's terrible. Uh, But you just kind of sit there and you watch people. And I have certainly done this on many occasions. And I found a place instead of just looking at my phone or my tablet, I just sit there and I watch people. And it's actually very fascinating to do. Because as you watch people, you realize everybody kind of carries themselves in a different sort of way. And you can discern things about people, about just who they are and, and their lives by how they carry themselves, by their posture. And by posture, I don't mean necessarily like is their back straight and their shoulders squared up. I mean their overall disposition about how they carry themselves, the vibe that they give off. And you can immediately pick up, you know, if somebody is uh, more a bit meek or bashful or if they're a little bit more bombastic and kind of out there and a force of nature. You can very quickly discern if somebody carries himself just with a lot of poise, if they're more like laid back and casual, carefree. And that is the beauty of this great sea of humanity in which we live. We're all different. We all are created to express ourselves in unique ways. We all have our own posture, our own vibe, our own way of presenting ourselves. And in that, we convey lots about our personality, our stories, our values, etc. And while God has certainly created this vast diversity amongst people, there are some elements of character and of posture that He wants all people to have. He intends all people to carry themselves in, in some particular ways, and cast off a personal posture or vibe in, in particular ways. And so love is certainly one of those. We all ought to be broadcasting a, a sense of love about us. Same thing with me, self-control. But our text today addresses one particular posture that God wants all people to have, and that is a posture of humility. And the text today teaches that all Christians ought to have an authentic posture of humility, particularly as they relate to the world in three categories or spheres of relationships, as they relate to uh, Christians, leadership within the church, also as they relate to one another, and as they relate to God himself. And so we're going to see this in the book of 1 Peter in chapter 5. So turn with me, if you would, there. We're going to be looking at verses 5 and 6 today in 1 Peter 
chapter 5. And to just remind you of the context, verses 1 through 4, which we've been teaching on the past couple weeks, all address church leadership and really what healthy shepherding looks like within the church. And Peter exhorts the leaders how best to lead the flock of God. And now here in verse 5, he takes a shift, and he begins talking now more to the congregation at large. Let me read the passage then, just verses 5 and 6. It says, "'Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders.'" Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. Now, the central command in this passage we see in verse 5, it is the command to clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. And this command is repeated then in verse 6, when Peter writes, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So Peter exhorts his people to be, his readers to be humble. And they're also exhorted to follow church leadership. Again, in verse 5, it begins, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Now, be subject, that's a different command than be humble, but it's very related. It's pretty much like an aspect of humility. And so there is a pervading sense here that believers ought to embrace a posture of humility. But what, what really is humility? It's a term we throw around all the time. How should we understand it? How can we define this concept of humility? Well, let me throw one definition at you, see what you think of this. Here's a good definition I like. It says, humility is attitudes and actions marked by meekness, modesty, restraint, and respect. It's attitudes and actions marked by meekness, modesty, restraint, and respect. So let me just kind of walk through this definition a bit. First, we realize that humility involves both attitudes and actions. There is both an internal component to humility, something that is an internal posture that generates within our heart, and then that internal reality expresses itself outward in how we live and how we relate to people and the actions that we, we engage in. And so there is this internal element, a humble heart produces a humble Life. A humble posture is both internal and external, and then that posture is seen as we engage in actions and, have, and reflect attitudes that are meek, that are modest, that are restrained, that are, show respect. And so, humility is being courteous and respectful. It involves a certain degree of um, submissiveness and deference. Humility happens as we put other people before ourselves. It also involves us thinking rightly about ourselves in our position in relation to God and to one another. And humility certainly also involves us being keenly aware of our weaknesses and inadequacies. Perhaps humility is also best understood by comparing it to its opposite, which is, of course, pride and boastfulness and arrogance and ego. We all know people who have big egos, don't we? People who think far too much of themselves. Perhaps that's somebody in your workplace, someone in your family. Perhaps you're married to somebody like that. Prideful, arrogant, boastful people. People who are aware of their own strengths and largely oblivious to their weaknesses. They often have an inflated view of themselves. They have a confidence about them that is infused with feelings of superiority They're often not good listeners. They're frequently entrenched in their own ways. They sometimes come across as being domineering or bullying. And people often feel demeaned around them rather than inspired. That's 
pride, but in contrast, humility involves having a very accurate assessment of ourselves. It's being keenly aware of our weaknesses and not just our strengths. It involves being slow to speak and quick to listen. It means that instead of trying to dictate and dominate, we endeavor to serve and to help. Humility means that others around us feel encouraged and uplifted and inspired rather than demeaned by us. And there's all sorts of examples of this contrast of pride versus humility that we see in the world. It's demonstrated all the time in media, in TV, in movies. In many cases, you you turn a particular film or movie, and if there's a clear villain, well, that villain is often typified by kind of a posture of pride and arrogance. While in contrast, the hero often demonstrates a, a way about him that is more meek, and unassuming. So many take, for example, many Disney movies and Pixar films have this particular contrast. Take Big Hero 6, recent movie uh, that's recently come out, and you have Baymax, the more unassuming hero, and then you have Professor Callahan, the more arrogant villain. Or you can go to The Lion King, and you have Simba versus Scar. Or let me take you back to the movies Back to the Future. Remember these Back to the Future movies? They've been in the news a little bit recently because the the first one actually just turned 30 years old. How's that for dating ourselves a little bit? But also, the second movie has famously predicted that the Cubs will win the World Series in 2015. So, we're going to see how that goes. Just saying. But think of those movies. Who's the hero in those movies? It's Marty McFly, played by... Michael J. Fox, and he's this kind of unassuming, genteel sort of fellow. And who's the main antagonist or the villain in the film? It's a guy by the name of Biff Tannen. Biff. Who's going to name their kids Biff? He's this kind of prideful, in-your-face, arrogant sort of fellow, right? And there's this great contrast here between the posture of humility and the posture of pride. And we see this contrast in entertainment all the time. It makes for good drama, just seeing the contrast between good and evil here. But it is also very true to life. God's people, righteous people, are the heroes of God's story, and heroes ought to have a posture of humility. This is the expectation placed upon God's people. And being humble doesn't mean that you become a doormat. Some of the most influential, impactful leaders throughout history have been genuinely humble people. And books have been written about the famous humility that is seen in men like Benjamin Franklin and Abraham Lincoln, or Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, of course, Jesus himself. And so you can be genuinely very humble and still be a very assertive and incredible leader. Because assertiveness and servant leadership is very different from the aggression and closed-mindedness and self-inflated arrogance that flows from pride. Many of history's most respected and looked to influential leaders have been men and women of character and of humility. So God's word here exhorts us all to be people of humility. And this exhortation comes in the context of a metaphor. Look at verse 5 when it says, We are to clothe ourselves in humility. And so just as you, in coming here to church, you put on some clothes, you put on a shirt, you put on a jacket to come here this morning, Christians are exhorted to kind of put on humility. And there is an intentionality to this. You just don't get dressed in the morning by accident. It just doesn't happen by accident. You have to put some effort into it, some thought into it. Christians ought to do the same thing as we try to put on humility. And this metaphor is also meant to invoke this image that just as clothing surrounds us, 
And it is a visible presentation of our identity. People clearly see what we are wearing. It is on display for all to see. So too ought to this virtue of humility be seen and worn by believers. It ought to be a very present reality in our lives. Our posture needs to be so humble that it is just part of our personal identity as people think and see us. So Peter describes how Christians then ought to have this authentic posture of humility, and particularly as it relates to three different areas or realms of relationships in which people intersect, three spheres of relationships where this humble posture is important. The first where Christians ought to have a posture of authentic humility is in relationship to church leadership. To church leadership, looking again at the beginning of verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, the younger here is really being applied to the congregation at large. It means pretty much everybody. Uh, Hey, if you're not an elder, you're younger. And uh, so, for all you who aren't elders, here's my command for you, Peter, saying, be subject to the elders. That be subject, that's not the same as obey. It's not the same. It doesn't mean that we unquestionably do everything that our elders tell us to do. Being subject does not mean that we blindly follow. We're, We're people for them to dictate around and tell us what to do. We always ought to make sure that our leadership is biblical and is God-honoring. To be subject means that we find our proper place under authority and then, the, and then we act accordingly. And we adopt a humble posture and we submit appropriately to our leadership. This is what healthy sheep do in response to healthy shepherding. And there's lots of specific ways that we take this posture of humility and are submissive to our leadership here in the church. But let me just share with you three, three examples. The first is this. You be a source of unity. Be a source of unity. You know, it's a sad fact that churches often have church splits. And I've heard some absolutely terrible stories over the years of just some horrendous church splits that happened. Undoubtedly, some of you have perhaps experienced one of those. And people are always hurt in that process. There's always a great amount of pain when a church splits. And occasionally, truthfully, occasionally these splits are merited. In instances, for example, where there's doctrinal or moral drift, like right now, there are some congregations where the leadership there are embracing same-sex marriage. And there's many people in churches that are moving this direction that are leaving in droves. Essentially, there's a church split that's happening because the people there, large number of them, the congregation disagree with the doctrinal direction of leadership. I think it is moving morally astray. Sometimes churches split for those reasons, but more often than not, churches split because of pride. When some leaders get their nose bent out of shape because a particular decision wasn't made in the way that they wanted or they weren't given the place of responsibility or authority that they wanted, and so a power battle ensues and division happens, and there is never an abundance of humility when a church splits in this way. There's always a lot of pride. There's always a lot of ego when this kind of strife happens in a church. Being subject to your church elders means that you fight that pride. You make a concerted effort not to be a source of division, but a a force for unity. You might not always agree or like with the direction or decision the leadership makes, but humility says that you don't intentionally cause problems. You don't participate in all the -the behind-the-scenes murmuring that sometimes takes place. You don't try to cause unrest in the congregation 
because some things, frankly, just don't meet your preferences. So you be a source of unity. That's one way we submit to our church leadership. Another is this, that you be respectful and gracious. You be respectful and gracious. Look, you're you're never going to like everything we do here at Bethel Church, bottom line. You're just not going to like everything, okay? No one's ever going to be perfectly happy with Bethel Church. As a church, we've got our faults. We've got our clunky things that we're working on. We've, we drop the ball at times. We botch things up at times. Our leaders are not infallible. They do make mistakes. But relating to our leadership in a humble posture means that you are respectful and gracious. Sometimes people have come to me frustrated. They come to me ticked off because of some decision that the leadership has made. Ah, we're not spending our money right in this way. Or, what are you doing starting that new initiative? That's crazy. Or, uh, more often than not, it's, why in the world have you stopped doing this thing we used to always do? And they come griping, and they come complaining, and often in a very antagonistic sort of way with an attitude that's like, how in the world could you be making that decision? Many times times I've sat with that person who is disgruntled, and I've explained to him or her the rationale behind the decision. And often, sometimes what happens is they realize, wait a minute, There's more behind this decision than I initially thought. There's a lot more complicated factors involved here. It's not as cut and dry, perhaps, as I initially thought, but in their pride, they were kept from seeing that. Their pride kept them from seeing that. It's a lot more complicated than just their narrow view led them to believe. And humility acknowledges that you probably don't have all the facts in some of these situations. Decisions that might seem totally boneheaded to you are in fact probably far more complex than you realize. And therefore, a humble posture towards leadership means that you're often slow to pass judgment on leadership decisions, particularly decisions where, that are matters of preference rather than matters of principle. And a humble posture towards leadership means that you give the benefit of the doubt to godly leadership and say, you know, I don't have all the facts. I've not wrestled with this issue the same way that my leadership has. And ultimately, humility says, you know what? I'm not the one God has put in charge. I, it's not up to me to make that call. And so, I'm going to trust God's appointed people to do that. Now, this posture of humility Posture of humility, it requires us to choose to respect and trust leadership decisions even when you don't agree with it. Now, I've had to walk in this tension a lot during my tenure here as a staff person. I'm engaged in many discussions. Pastor Steve and I have gone round and round many times having little uh, debates about things we should do, strategy, how to deal with the situation, etc., etc. And I'm thankful to say that, you know, most of the time we come to a good consensus, But sometimes we don't exactly see eye to eye. And there are times when we end up doing what I advocate for, but probably not enough. You see the irony of that statement, of course, in a message on humility. But other times, generally, Pastor Steve or the elders, they choose a path that is maybe not my first preference, the way I would have gone about it. But what does my response need to be at a time like that? Should I get mad and send an angry email? Should I level some threats? Should I talk quietly behind the scenes and stir up some disgruntlement? What, what would a posture of humility be in a situation like that? Posture of humility means that I get on board and I trust and respect my leadership. I try to foster within myself an attitude that says, you know what, that might not be the exact decision, the exact way I would have been about it, but you know what? I, that's just my preference anyways. 
Now, my preference may be a good preference, but it's not necessarily the best preference. There's more than one way to skin a cat here. My preference, I like it, but it's certainly not the only way we can move forward here and solve that challenge. And it also embraces the fact that, you know, God hasn't put me in that place of having to make that decision anyways. That's not my responsibility. It's not my job to make that call. And so, a posture of humility means that I show respect and graciousness and restraint to the leadership that God has put over me, even when I sometimes don't agree with it. And the Lord has called all of us to have this posture of humility towards our leadership, being respectful and gracious. Another way that God's people relate to their leadership in humility is that they are responsive, that you be responsive. Now, every week you come to church and somebody stands here in this place, in this pulpit, and challenges you from God's Word. I'm doing that right now. And this activity of preaching, as it happens, pride says, I don't need to hear that. That's not for me. I've got that figured out. While humility says, what can I learn from God's word today? How do I need to be challenged from God's word today? And a great way that you can submit to the leadership here in this place is to respond to the leadership as they particularly exhort you from God's word and the other challenges that we lay out to the congregation. And as a pastor who preaches here on occasion, do you know what the greatest compliment that you can ever give me after a sermon is? The greatest compliment you can ever give me after a sermon is not, oh, I enjoyed that sermon. Listen, we're not here to entertain you. That's not our objective in opening God's word. The greatest compliment that you can ever give somebody who preaches here is God spoke to me today through the word, and I'm going to do my best to act upon it. That's the greatest compliment that you can give anybody who opens God's word here in this pulpit. Because that is what leadership endeavors to do here as we lead, that through teaching, through ministry, planning, and campus development, and anything that we do, we endeavor to serve you by helping you to grow, by helping you to mature, by helping you to be equipped and and built up and encouraged in your faith. And so, respond to our efforts by being humble and receiving our leadership, receiving our exhortation, and responding to that. And not saying, well, I don't need to hear a sermon about being humble. You, of course, see the irony in that statement? Respond to it. Don't ignore it. A humble posture towards leadership means that you respond when leadership calls you to action instead of just sitting there smugly and saying, well, that's, that's not for me. Now, in saying all this, let me make a general evaluation towards us, Bethel Church. How are we doing in this? And to that, I would generally say, well done, Bethel. Well done. As one of the leaders here, I feel that this is genuinely a strength in our church. We don't have a lot of critical murmuring going around here, at least that I'm privy to. It seems that people genuinely trust and support the leadership here, and that makes for a healthy church. It makes for a healthy church, and it makes for a church that can really get some serious things done for the kingdom. Because a church that has a humble posture towards one another and especially towards leadership is a church that can now take all of its energy and focus it outward to really making an impact in his community and reaching people for the Lord rather than taking all of its energy and trying to calm dissension within while we're fighting each other and arguing over prideful things. 
Always looking inward instead of looking outward. A humble posture encourages and empowers the church to be on mission to have a great impact in this community. So overall, well done, Bethel. Absolutely well done. I feel that most of you generally have a very humble posture towards our leadership. Now there are some exceptions, of course, and you know who you are. But overall, I say to these things, well done. Let's keep working hard to stand guard against our pride, which will creep in and fight so hard to maintain this humble posture that we have towards our leadership. Now, Peter just doesn't exhort us, though, to have a humble posture towards church leadership. He also has another key group in mind, that Christians ought to have an authentic, humble posture towards church leadership, but also toward one another. He says in verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So we need to have humility towards our peers, towards one another. And there, therefore, ought to be a, a kind of a mutual deference within the congregation as we respect one another, as we exercise self-control in relating to each other. We're modest in that. We realize that, uh, hey, there's some people here in this church who can do things far better than I can do it. We believe in each other much more than we just believe in ourselves. And there's a myriad of ways that humility can be expressed to one another within the congregation. All these things I've talked about how we relate to leadership certainly applies to one another as well. But let me give you some more just practical ways that we can have a humble posture toward one another, okay? Some more practical ways of how we can do this for one another. Here's one. Exercise self-restraint in speaking of yourself. Yeah, it's going to get real now. Exercise self-restraint in speaking of yourself. How often in conversation does the subject matter turn to you? Do you find yourself more frequently asking people about their experiences, or do you find yourself more frequently talking about your own experiences? Humility means that we're more interested in other people than we're interested in ourselves. So what do your postings on social media look like? How's your, how's your face brag going? When you put that thing online, what is your heart desiring as you make that post or send out that tweet? Is it, well, I, I hope I get some likes for this. I hope I get some attention for this. I hope people's opinion of me rises because of this. People just really need to understand a lot more how awesome I am. You see, constantly promoting the highlight reel of your life doesn't do a lot to engender and build humility. It often results in building pride. So look through your social media posts and see how you're doing in that. How many of your posts are about yourself instead of celebrating some fabulous thing that somebody else has done? What are you praising, yourself or others? And what about the Lord? Is giving Him praise part of your social media life? Exercise self-restraint in speaking of yourself. That's clothing ourselves in humility with one another. Another example is this, be charitable amid our personal preferences, our personal differences. Be charitable amid those things. Look, we all have our own set of personal preferences, right? And do you know what pride usually does? It elevates the preferences that we have into somehow being the absolute best, without question, very best way of doing things, right? So take a trivial example. Home decorating, okay? Now, many of you here, you might prefer neutral colors, soft tones. And somebody else might prefer pink polka dots and lime green. 
Now, is one really better than the other? Is one really superior to the other? No, they're just a matter of preference. If somebody want to paint, paint, paint their house with pink polka dots and lime green, go for it. Just don't be my neighbor. <laughs> or if you want to plaster your bed, your, your, your bathroom with wallpaper, with pictures of Barney the Dinosaur, new kids on the block, more power to you. Right? That's just a preference thing. Who am I to stand in judgment over whether that way is superior than another way? It's just a preference. But how many times have I heard whisperings amongst people saying things like, oh, their taste in clothing is so outdated. I can't believe they chose to purchase that car. Do you know how they decorate their home? It, It really needs some work. Do you know the kind of music they listen to? Do you know that they don't like Chick-fil-A? Can you believe that they hate watching sports? Now, what's behind those kinds of comments? What's behind those kinds of comments are feelings of superiority about our own preferences. And so let's not be judgmental towards one another. Let's not think that our own personal tastes are the absolute best personal tastes. Let's be charitable amid our personal differences. That's clothing ourselves with humility towards one another. Another way that we do this is we freely admit our faults and failures. Freely admit your faults and failures. Now, this is a hard one. See, a humble posture requires us to admit that we don't have it all together. There are parts of our lives that are a wreck, where we have sin, we have pride, we mess things up. And a humble posture towards one another, if we have that, you know what you should see in our church? Lots of confession. Lots of being free to admit our failures and our faults. Lots of people saying, please forgive me. Lots of, yeah, I really stink at this and I really need God's help to get better at it. But our pride often keeps us from going there, doesn't it? And same thing with the pressures of our community, American society that says, don't ever project weakness. Make sure people know about your strengths, but they better not know about your faults. Listen, don't play that game. Freely admit your faults and your failures. And how how great would it be if our culture here was one where people felt free to share about their weaknesses and, and then people came around them and encouraged them and built them up and uplifted them and helped them to grow and helped them to mature through that. This is one thing we endeavor so much that we want to do through our small group ministry. So that prayer time is not just focused on great Aunt Mary's hangnail or your cat that has a furball problem. Instead, we get real with each other, laying some hard things out there, our sins, our weaknesses, our failures, our struggles, and helping each other with those things, advising and admonishing and encouraging each other in those things. If that's going to happen, a lot of pride around here is going to have to die. We're going to have to clothe ourselves with humility more and more, to freely admit our faults and failures, and also to invite and to receive rebuke and correction from those who know us well. So that's clothing ourselves with humility towards one another, admitting our faults and failures. And last, look first to the interests of others. We look to the interests of others. By this I mean that we serve and we care for one another. This is, of course, a lot of what love is. Love and humility are two very interrelated virtues because in order to love somebody, you have to have the humility to put that person first. And so being humble towards another person is expressed as we demonstrate care, as we show love 
as we look out for the interests of others. A humble church cares for each other deeply. That's clothing ourselves with humility towards one another. Now, those are just some practical ways that we can clothe ourselves with a humble posture towards one another. We need to fight hard to take off the garments of pride and arrogance and ego and self-sufficiency that we so naturally gravitate to. We need to cast those aside and instead put on the beautiful garment of a humble posture. And we would be a better church and I would submit also a more joyful people if we were to do that. So Christians ought to demonstrate this humble posture in relationship to their church leadership in relationship to one another, but there is one more relational area, relational area where we need to put on an authentically humble posture, and that is in relationship to God Himself. And of all the relationships where we should be humble, this is, of course, the most obvious, isn't it? Because God is mighty, and we are not. That's what verse 6 says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He might exalt you. Notice the adjective used to describe God here. He is mighty. He is matchless in His ability, in His power, in His supremacy, in His might. He is mighty. And by inference, the passage should lead us to conclude that we are not. You see, we are outclassed by God in every conceivable dimension. In every conceivable way, God absolutely trumps us with His supremacy. So you think you're smart? Okay. You're probably kind of smart. But who has perfect, infinite knowledge of every minute detail in the entire universe? Who can call to mind every fact, every figure, every detail about anything without any effort at all? Who knows, who's watched over the expanse of time? Who knows and understands perfectly everything that's happened in the course of human history. Who knows the future perfectly, without error or fault, and so that nothing catches him by surprise, nothing catches him off guard. Who has the highest degrees possible in the fields of biology and mathematics and physics and sociology and chemistry and aeronautics and engineering and philosophy? You think you're smart? Okay. How smart are you in comparison to our mighty God. Or you think you're powerful. Okay? You're kind of powerful. But who has formed the foundations of the earth? Who has placed the heavens in their place and formed stars and the moon and planets and comets and who has filled the sky of creation, the breadth of which just extends but the span of his hand? Who creates the tides in the oceans? Who causes hurricanes to form or tornadoes to vanish in a moment? Who has given life to every living thing? Who cures sickness and diseases without any explanation at all? You think you're powerful? Okay. How powerful you are in comparison to our mighty God. Or you think you're talented? Okay. You're kind of talented. But who dreamt up the immense diversity of this world in which we live. Who created the potential for music and artistry and beauty? Who can solve any problem and come up with the most perfect solution every time? 
Who's responsible for the beauty of a sunset? Or the awesome wonder of a coral reef teeming with tropical fish? Or the majestic scale of the Grand Tetons or the rings of Saturn? You think you're talented, okay? But how talented are you in comparison to Almighty God? You think you've accomplished some great things, okay? I don't doubt that. You've accomplished some great things. But who has solved the inevitable problem of death? Who has conquered the grave and utterly defeated evil? Who brings perfect restoration to things that were broken? Who will someday make all things new again? You think you've accomplished some great things? Okay. But how great are your accomplishments in comparison to those of our mighty God? You think you're an admirable person of character. Okay, I don't doubt you have some admirable traits. But who has given up all privileges of divinity to come and take the form of an infant child and demonstrated unyielding love and grace and patience to the outcasts of society, the marginalized, the destitute, who would show unyielding love to people who would spit in his face, who lived among the poorest of the poor, invited children to sit and be taught from his lap, who put on the clothing of a servant and washed his disciples' feet, who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and in all of this, never once speaking an ill word, never once losing self-control, never once giving in to temptation, but living a perfect life of character and submission and selflessness and humility. You think you're a person of character? Okay. You've got some admirable traits. But how do you compare to Jesus? How do you compare to our mighty God? Do you get the point here? We are not awesome. We are anything but. We are not great. We are not mighty. We are anything but. Only God is truly awesome. Only God is truly mighty. And when we see ourselves in proper comparison to Him, it should break us. It should humble us to our core. It should utterly wreck our pride and cause us to say, I am nothing compared to you. And then we fall on our face before our holy, awesome, majestic, mighty God in repentance, and we cry out for forgiveness for the ways that we inflate our own worth, our own abilities, our own accomplishments, subtly thinking somehow perversely that that we have more greatness than Him. That is utter foolishness. And to not relate to our mighty God from a posture of abject humility is utter foolishness. Foolishness. We need to think more of ourselves in comparison to Him rather than in comparison to other people. Do that, and you will be humbled. And you will also be rewarded. Because looking back at verse 5, notice what we see here. Notice God's posture toward a humble posture. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a quote from, from Proverbs 3.34. 
And there is strong language here. God opposes the proud. He is against prideful people. He is bent against them. He is offended and he stands in opposition against pride. Those who are proud. Now who wants to be in this place where the mighty God is against them? That is a fearful thought. For the almighty God to be against you, I don't know about you, but I, don't want, I want no part in that. That sounds like a very serious thing. And why is God against pride? He's against pride because prideful people seek glory for themselves. They want attention given to themselves. They want acknowledgement and praise for themselves. They want to have their ego stroked. They want to have people acknowledge and praise them for their accomplishment. To look at them in admiration. Prideful people seek glory for themselves, and this then robs God of the glory that he is due. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be robbing God of his glory. God is against that. But to those who have a humble posture, the text says that God gives them grace. He extends to those people blessings. He loves a humble posture. And why does God love humility? Because humility rightly acknowledges the supremacy of God. Humility rightly says, I am nothing. God, you are everything. And humility then also rightly turns to God for rescue and for help. It says, I can do nothing on my own apart from him who strengthens me. God delights in being trusted. He delights in being depended on. He delights in being glorified. And humility ascribes glory to God because what humility is, is it acts as a mirror so that whenever praise comes our way, we just deflect that back and put it back on the Lord and say, well, praise be to Him. All goodness and glory and praise go to Him. God delights in in that, and he responds kindly to it. The text says that he gives grace to humble people who do that. So there is a fearful truth here, but there is also an incredible blessing. Yes, God is against the proud, but he also gives incredible grace to the humble. The theologian John Calvin summarized it this way when he said this, we are to imagine that God has two hands, the one which like a hammer beats down and breaks into pieces those who raise up themselves. The other which raises up the humble who willingly let themselves down themselves and is like a firm prop to sustain them. So God will bring the prideful down. It is better for us to humble ourselves before him than to have him do that humbling for us. Because one day every knee will bow. One day every person will be humbled before this mighty God and for some that will be an experience of joy but for others it will be an experience of terror and of dread. Because they lived their lives completely in prideful self-sufficiency, fundamentally worshiping themselves as God rather than the one who they were created for. And so God is against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that, my friends, that is the gospel, isn't it? That we come to God broken in our sin, really realizing our need for help, realizing a need for a Savior, realizing that we cannot solve this problem of death on our own, crying, humbly for help and salvation. And in that need, in that yearning, he gives us grace. Abundant grace, salvific grace, saving grace from our sins, and also sustaining grace to help us through every trial. Because there's another promise here that God gives to the humble. Notice verse six. Humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. At the proper time he may exalt you. 
Now, what's meant by this promise? Remember, Peter is writing to a group of people who are suffering, people who are essentially in exile, people who need rescue, people who need comfort, people who need encouragement and help. So Peter here is saying, hey, hey, church, and you're suffering, be humble. God will give you the grace to endure that trial. Be humble, because God will eventually bring you through that trial. He will, at the proper time, exalt you. He will, at the correct time, take that trial away. And so be humble and wait. And when you suffer, don't shake your fist at God and get all angry and say, this should not be happening. I should not have to face this. That's a prideful response. That's you saying, God, you're in control, but you know what? Your control is wrong. And that's why pride at its core, it challenges the sovereignty of God. It says that God is not wise. God is not sovereign. Might even say God is not good. So Peter is challenging his readers here. Be humble amid your suffering and patiently wait. God will give you grace. He will eventually bring you through it. Wait and be humble and depend on him. Because when we bring ourselves down, in humility, God will eventually lift us up in exaltation. That may not happen in this life. It may. It may. He may take the suffering away in this life and exalt us from the trial we're facing, but sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes that happens only when he takes us home. But in doing that, he takes away all of our suffering for eternity. And we see this emphasized towards the end of the book of 1 Peter in verse 10 when Peter writes, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And my friends, also is the gospel. And for those who turn to Christ in a humble faith, a day of glory awaits them. And for those who live their lives for God's glory, they too will one day be glorified. But that will not be their doing. How much do we live our lives trying to bring glory to ourselves when the solution to the glory that we want is not our efforts, it's God's? It's God taking the effort to exalt us and to lift us up and glorify us. And that day is coming for every person who trusts and believes in him. And it will be his doing, not ours. And so he will receive all the glory even that is given to us. And that is the foolishness of pride. And we think we can lift ourselves up. We don't need to try to exalt ourselves. So the humble God will someday do that for them. And so for the humble, there is grace in the moment, but there is also certain future exaltation. And the way up always comes, though, first by going down in humility. It happens as we go to the cross, submitting our lives to our Father. The way of exaltation comes by falling humbly to our knees and asking God for help. As a commentator, David Helms said, he summarized it this way, this life is anything but your best life now. Glory comes by way of the ground. The attainment of heaven will be By way of an excruciating journey, we will retain heaven's gains by carrying our cross in the here and in the now. So, friends, we would do well to adopt this posture of humility, certainly to God. We do that as we come to Him regularly in prayer, expressing our our dependence on 
Him. We do it in the mindset we embrace throughout the day as we lean on Him to help us in whatever task is before us or how we make sense of the trials and the hardships that come. We do it in how we worship or our lack of worship. When something good, when you have a win, how do you celebrate that? By bringing attention to yourself or by giving God worship and praise for that? We do well to strive to put on continually a more authentic posture of humility towards God. And in all of this, by God's grace, He has given us the perfect model of humility. A model that should inspire us, a model that should challenge us to follow His example. Jesus Himself, of course, is the perfect model of righteous humility, which began in His humble incarnation. As the God-man was born in a feeding trough, surrounded by muck and manure, and it ended with His atoning death, as he hung on a cross in abject humility, naked, scorned by all around. But in his humble life and in his sacrificial death, he became the servant of all mankind, and God exalted him to being at his right hand. And in that, he showed us the perfect way of humility. Jesus, he submitted himself rightly to the leadership. Even as a boy, when he sat under the teaching of, of the leaders and the, the religious leaders of the day, and even as he matured, he often honored the requests of those in power and authority. As he demonstrated great humility to those around him, as he washed the disciples' feet, as he ate with tax collectors and sinners, by having care for the lepers and the outcasts, by having a posture of meekness and modesty and restraint and respect. And of course, he demonstrated humility to God himself to whom he showed great trust and dependence and submission to the Father when he said, Lord, not my will but yours be done. And he submitted his life, trusting God to carry him through and always giving glory to God, the glory that was due. This is a high calling, but we have a wonderful example that should inspire us to put on this posture of humility. Let us follow Jesus' example in this as we relate to our leadership here in the church, as we relate to one another, and of course, as we relate to God himself. Incredible blessings come from that. We would receive great joy, great grace, as we grow in this posture of humility that God calls all people to have.